This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of five events. This recording is part one of the first event called Embracing the Urban Wild and features a series of quick-fire presentations from experts covering mana whenua perspectives on biodiversity, the science behind the relationship between climate change and biodiversity, and ways to wild the city. No mai tauti mai, i raro te maro, maru o tēnei whare a tāhua tūranga. Koutou kua whetūrangi tia, moe mai, moe mai, oki oki mai, rātou kia rātou, tātou kia tātou. Kei te mihi ki, ki a koutou ngā kai mahi o te mahi o te pō, uh, Jessica. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Joseph Hullen. Uh, I have the, the immense privilege of opening this evening and setting the tone uh, for the discussion and embracing your urban wild. I live at Kaiapoi. I was born and raised at Tuahiwi and my mum and dad bought a house in Kaiapoi. And if you go down Whitefield Street today and you look at my dad's garden, um, you see lawn, and a little bit later on, you'll see potatoes, cucumbers, tomatoes, and the odd shrub. If you have a look at my place in Kinnersley Street, my backyard looks a little bit like Craig's. Um, there's probably about 15 kōwhai trees, half a dozen harakeke, um, three or four kōtukutukus, they're our native tree fuchsia, um, and several Lancewoods, Hodoeka, Pseudopanixes. Um, I embrace the urban wild because I have a long-term aspiration. I'm currently a member, a trustee at Te Kohaka Tūhaitara. That manages the coastal wetland park between the Rakahuri and the Waimakariri rivers um, and is centred on Burien Beach and Tūtaipatu Lagoon. I know that over at Hiniwai Reserve there's a population of Tui and I know that from time to time they overwinter in the Terra Moana bush on Mount Cass. And from time to time, they stop off into Kohaka Tūhaitara and they sing. And our general manager, Greg Burns, takes great delight in posting live on Facebook, great day in this office. 
the many kōwhai trees that I've planted in my backyard are there for a purpose, and that's to attract those tuis that transit between Hiniwai and Te Moana bush. Native species don't just... Native species, native tree species, native vegetation species, mahinga kai, don't just provide food. They actually provide mana for the soul because the sound of those birds is infinitely more acceptable than the sound of urban traffic. When, we, when my mum and dad built the house at Kaiapoi, we were surrounded by paddocks. Just a little way distant was the Ahoka Swamp, or Ohoka Swamp, and a little bit further beyond that was the Fernside Swamp, and then a little bit further up the country was the Oxford Swamp. And in rain events like today, those swamps held water and slowly released it downstream. Not just a stormwater measure, they were actually a larder. Those swamps, I would wager, would supply more calories per hectare with no effort than any intensively farmed land. Recently I've been looking at, with interest, at the talk about housing intensification. Everybody wants a quarter acre section like me at Kaiapoi, surrounded by kōwhai trees and harakeke. The, real, the reality of that is, if everybody, want to, everybody gets what they want, a quarter acre section, won't be too many generations before there'll be a residential subdivision from the coast to the Alps. At the moment, there's an application to develop out at Ohoka, 700 houses. Those 700 houses will take away more diversity. Coming back into the city, so housing intensification is a necessary evil. It's how we, how we provide the green space that services those people in their housing that's important. Colin likely will talk to you later on about it's important to have diversity. Sometimes I actually think that the diversity needs to be a block of one species. So I have several different types of kōwhai, so they flower continually over a longer period of time than just one species. That means if those tui turn up in August instead of July when my first kōwhai are flowering, they're still going to get a feed. And likewise, I think embracing the urban wild, we need to do some of these things. So how about clumping various species or various cultivars of harakeke? They flower at different times. They provide nectar. They provide a food source. They're relatively easy to maintain, and they have an interesting form about them. How about clumping together, say, the kōwhais that I was talking about, or some caprosmas? Once again, they have varying types of berries, uh, varying types of uh, 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 cultivars of caprosma have berries that are available at different times of the year, providing food. Becoming familiar with our natives inspires people to actually get their fingers dirty and help to maintain their garden. And before you know it, you could actually invest some effort in scattering perhaps some lettuce seeds underneath, some silver beet, some radishes, some of those things that you can actually eat as well. And then you ingrain in your children a bit of an ethic of caring for the land and growing some stuff. 
I often stand in these kind of forums bleating on about how our mātauranga Māori um, dictates the way we conducted ourselves in our life and the way we managed our resources. There's a good reason for that. It's ingrained in us over 10,000 years of voyaging around the Pacific. Aotearoa, the last archipelago to be um, populated by Polynesians, so for about 10,000 years, Craig and I's relations have been hopping into Waka and paddling off into the unknown with a finite amount of food and the hope that their science and their navigation skill will get them to a homeland. And by utilising their knowledge of the stars to anchor the seasons in a calendar that they understood, they were then able to prosper in each new homeland they came to. Even the coldest, most temperate archipelago in Polynesia. Western science is said to be superior to Mātauranga Māori. Mātauranga Māori has dictated and shaped me into doing the things that I do. Western science has told us since I was a boy at Xavier College and the I Care movement that what we're doing to the earth is not sustainable that it will be the death of us all. The greatness that is Western science in 50 years has yet to be able to change the way we do things, the way we conduct ourselves in our environment. That's the challenge. We have to stop, we have to change, and we have to do it fast, because if we don't, I believe that rather than planting kōwhais and harakekes and lettuces and silver beets around their houses, a couple of generations' time, children might as well start planting kelp. Kapwa. Let's change today. Let's start to impact that change and ripple it down through our children. Let's grasp hold of the Naitahu Whakatauki, Motato, A, Mokauri, A Muriake Nei, not just for us, but our children and their children and their children who come after us. Kia ora. Kia ora, Namahi Joseph. Um, thank you for opening this evening by grounding us in your perspective and in the perspective of mana whenua. Those are really important words for us to take in. You might want to sit down for a bit, Angus. It's my turn. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, tēnā koutou. Um, Ki te mana whenua o tini takiwa naitua hūrere, ki te mihi, ki te mihi, ki te mihi. Ko Jessica Halliday tōku ingoa, ko ahau te kaiwhakahaere o te Pūtahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. Kia ora, tātou katoa. It's my pleasure as the Director of Te Pūtahi to welcome you all to uh, those in the room and to those joining us online to Embracing the Urban Wild which is the first event in the 2022 edition of Christchurch Conversations towards 2030. This speaker series started last year with five events, which you can watch on YouTube if you want to, 
and I would encourage you to. They all looked at different urban changes, these changes that Joseph talked about, um, that we need to make to reach our city's emission goals by the year 2030. This year we pick up the conversation again and start by considering the ways in which climate change will affect human and more than human species in this city and how we can work together in this place to address the greatest challenge we have ever faced. Before we begin, there are two groups of uh, organisations and people who've made today's event possible and that we at Teputahi would very much like to thank. Firstly, our supporters and partners, our series partner, the Christchurch City Council, and our research partner, the Urban Wellbeing Nakaina Ora thread of Better, Better Homes, Towns and Cities, one of the national science challenges. Secondly, a huge great thanks to this amazing array of knowledgeable speakers who are appearing tonight. Thank you all for accepting our invitation to speak, to challenge us, and to help us better understand the potential for this place to embrace wildness within the city's boundaries. So how is tonight going to roll? Well, we have a series of speakers, and you can tell who the first one is. Um, oh, sorry, the second one, after Joseph, uh, and a panel discussion. And during the panel discussion, there'll be room for a few questions from the floor and online. There have been some last-minute changes to the speakers, thanks to COVID and flooding. So thank you for your understanding as we navigate this. As a packed program, so we'll be keeping introductions as snappy as we can. Uh, if you hear a soothing chime towards the end of the presentations, that's our speaker's one-minute mark. Um, but now quickly, just for some scene-setting of Te Putahi's own. Why are we doing this? Well, recently we've all read those headlines about how climate change is already affecting New Zealand's biodiversity and native species, about the mass deaths of Korora, the little blue penguins in Northland last month. An investigation showed that those hundreds and hundreds of those birds, they, were, they starved to death, and not because of overfishing, rather because climate change is creating waters too warm for the fish that they feed on. Data released last year saw the highest global ocean temperatures in recorded history. We also saw the headlines about the bleaching of sponges in Fiordland, marine sponges, also attributed to warming oceans. So what does this decline in marine biodiversity have to do with this place? As we'll learn tonight, thank you Angus, it's not just at both ends of the country or in marine environments that plants, animals and ecosystems are threatened by climate change. It's happening here too. So what do we do about this? Of course, we have to accelerate our collective action to mitigate climate change, to reduce emissions, to give up fossil fuels. We also have to do more than that, and I thank you, Joseph, again for telling us what else we have to do. We need to open our imaginations, we need to evolve or maybe devolve our thinking and expand our experiences of how we relate to and think about this living world. We've called tonight's event Embracing the Urban Wild because one of the root causes of climate change is the way we've separated ourselves from the rest of the natural world, both conceptually, in that we keep seeing nature as something that's distinct from ourselves rather than a living system that humans are part of, and physically. We've also done that in our urban settlements. We've removed ourselves from so much of the natural world. So tonight, thanks to our speakers, we'd like to explore why, how and where Ōtotahi Christchurch can become a more wild place. 
So I would like now to hand over to our second speaker, um, Professor Angus McIntosh, who's going to talk about how the climate crisis affects biodiversity here. Please welcome him. Tēnā koutou katoa, uh, itamana whenua nai toa, riri, uh, tēnā koutou. Uh, it's, great to, it's great to be here. Thank you for coming out on what is a wonderfully wet night. Um, I'm saying that as a freshwater ecologist, because that's what I mostly do, but I've been asked to talk about uh, biodiversity in general. And tēnā uh, koe, Joseph, and you know, you're absolutely right that people change things. Uh, and so... Uh, my role here is to try and give you some ideas, uh, some more ideas, and that's what I'm going to try and do. This is a climate model. Um, I'm not going to try and explain it greatly, uh, and I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but the things that they tell us are scary, uh, and they're not just about warming. You probably, I, I was going to do a bit of a poll thinking about, you know, what do you think the most or the worst consequences of climate warming are? Uh, and I was expecting that most people might say, well, it's going to get warmer. But the reality is that it's going to change a lot in a lot of different directions. And so this, this model here, uh, which, is, uh, which is a downscale global, global model, has some information on what's going to happen in Canterbury. Uh, and we might see a mean increase in, in 0.9, so almost a degree Celsius, you know, uh, a loss of about 1% of precipitation by 2040, something like that, reduction in rainfall. But the really scary part is, the really scary part, is that uh, there's this variation here. We could go up to 2 degrees, uh, and we could go from minus 10% in rainfall to plus 9%. Now, so that variability is huge, right? That's massive. Um, and we're experiencing that today. And you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the rain because, gosh, do we need to have our groundwater replenished and we need all that snowpack and those sorts of things. But um, it's going to get more variable. Uh, and so the variability, I think, is probably the biggest challenge for our biota. Uh, it's been said that Aotearoa is incredibly variable and our biota you know, are pretty used to that. Um, and that's true to a certain extent, uh, but they're not, they can't do everything. Uh, and so I want to think about what the consequences of that might be, some insights, and, and what we can do in management. I'm going to talk about three main things. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Kuaro, Canterbury mudfish, uh, first, critically endangered, um, lives entirely off the conservation estate on the Canterbury Plains. Um, you know, so. Uh, our farmers and others are kaitiaki of this, uh, of this fish, uh, and it's incredibly um, resilient. You know, they can withstand uh, weeks on end out of water as long as it's damp. Um, they can withstand very low oxygen levels in the water. They can withstand very high temperatures. But they cannot do it for months on end. They can't do it for months on end. So, you know, this whole idea that sort of generalist kind of lifestyle and wide environment, environmental tolerances are not bomb-proof. Uh, and so we've been looking at what mudfish do uh, on the plains. This is work from uh, Chris Meyer. Uh, and and a, lot, a big question's been here is, you know, should we plant, should we put a canopy over the streams that these fish are in? Because a lot of the streams that are in at the moment don't have a, don't have a vegetated canopy. And if you have a look 
Uh, as canopy goes up, the relative abundance of large mudfish adults increases. Large mudfish get, you know, what does a canopy do? Why might a canopy be useful? Um, well, it's kind of, you know, it's mudfish takeout bar. There's lots of invertebrates and things which fall from, from the canopy and the mudfish eat them. Uh, and, uh, and as drying intensity increases, uh, mudfish abundance goes down. So, you know, trees are good, drying bad. But there's a real kicker in this relationship. And, and it is that it depends on what sort of tree that you have. Because if it's willows, uh, then it makes the drying worse. And so uh, that ends up being a really bad thing. Because willows are thirsty, right? They take up lots of water. They use, they use that water in photosynthesis. Almost any other sort of tree works. Almost any other sort of tree. Hawthorn, whatever, weeds. Colin will probably hate me for saying this. But um, you know, as long as there's a canopy over the stream um, that keeps the temperature down, surprise food, mudfish do better as long as it's not willows because they suck all the water away. So, um, you know, we, you know, invasive willows deliver food and cover, but they intensify drying. We really need to engineer these habitats. And, it, and there's no other better example of, of mudfish habitat engineering than uh, what they're doing at, at Tuhaihatara, uh, Te Kohaka, uh, or Tuhaihatara that uh, Joseph has already talked about. So if you haven't been there, um, go out this weekend, have a walk around, have a look at the boat and They've got some wonderful new interpretation panels. And... Um, that, uh, that iwi that uh, um, are leading the world in uh, restoration in, in this respect. They've been making, making mudfish habitats which make resilient fish populations given, given what the climate's throwing at us at the moment. Second thing I want to talk about, and actually some of the, well, I think one of the people who might have been responsible for collecting this data is in the audience, or Julie, I'm not sure where you are now, Julia, but anyway, this is a, yeah, this is a, this is a piece of video collected from... Uh, the Biology 378 conservation class, not too far from here, um, up on the Port Hills at the Summit Road Society's Omuhu uh, Bush Reserve. Uh, if you know your rats, you'll know that it's got a long tail and the ears don't flip over. You know, so it's, what sort of rat is it? Ship rat. It's a ship rat. Good, yeah, long tail, yeah. Um, good. Uh, it's been said that you're probably, when you're living in an urban space, you're probably not more than 20 or 30 metres from a rat. Um, I'm not sure which of you has got the rat under your seat, but you can check later. Um, but rats are something that we're going to have to embrace more of um, as the climate warms. This uh, is some work from Holly Harris, who's uh, a young student at, at UC. Uh, just, she did this in her honours project last year. Uh, up until 2010, no rats had been observed at Craigieburn. That's through all of those years of monitoring. If you know Craigieburn, you know, up on the way to Arthur's Pass, no rats, have, no rats were observed. Um, from 2007 to 2019, 310 rats were, were observed. Uh, Holly's done a whole bunch of models on this, and, and basically if you combine a mild winter with lots of seed fall on the beach, you get lots of rats. Uh, at the Rakahuri, up, up just up the road, uh, Norway rats have been observed for the first time on the river for the last two years, uh, I understand. So rats are a thing of the future um, in, urban, in urban environments. This is some work from Susan, um, Susan Walker, which shows that you can... If, can you see the colours? You know, so up, up north, um, it's more continuously ratty, um, basically... Tracking rates are, are more consistently above 0.6 um, rats observed per trap night kind of style thing. I think it's per 100 trap nights, actually. Um, 
And, and down here, mostly, you know, you get the eruptive dynamics when, when seed falls. But, but as the climate warms, Susan's most recent models are suggesting that, that, that things will get more ratty. So we're going to see more rats. Um, that's, of course, bad news. Uh, but there's something we can do about it. There's a wonderful city project going on. It involves um, predator-free port hills. Uh, and the Summit Road Society actually um, have a, a trap-building workshop uh, at Sumner, uh, at Redcliffe School this weekend, if you want to go and, and have a look at that. Uh, so those predator control projects are, are going to be really crucial for dealing with, uh, for making sure uh, the Tui continue to sing in Joseph's Kofi tree. Finally, what's going on here? This is, this is actually the Waimakariri. Uh, it's probably not looking like this today. It's probably a heck of a lot greyer. But um, what's going on? There's, there's a grey turbid channel coming down and there's a, a clear spring channel, right? Is that what you're thinking? Good. This is sort of moderate flood conditions like you see lots of um, October and November. And I'm using this to represent um, that variety in the wild. Uh, and this is probably the hardest thing if we're going to really embrace the urban wild is to get something that has variety in it. Um, I'll tell you why. This is to do with um, braided rivers. And you know, braided rivers are one of the most disturbed environments there is. You know, they flood all the time, the channels move around, all of that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, but yet they sustain these wonderful bird populations um, and there's lots of productivity you know, under normal circumstances that they can find to feed there. So um, how, do, how does that happen? Uh, and we're pretty sure it's got to do with the variety of different habitats that they support, including these springs, you know, which are driven by the changing of the channels. Um, and so they're stable, and yeah, they're the takeout bar for the, for the, for the birds uh, when the rest of the channel's flooding. And if you look at, um, this is some work that Nixie Body did, uh, if you look at, this is complicated, but you can handle it. Um, the mean coefficient of variation, the proportion of fish assemblage native, fancy word for basically when those numbers are high there, you've got um, much higher proportions of the fish assemblage, which is made up of native fish. Uh, and so when you have lots of confluences, so the river's complicated, that would be um, high confluence heterogeneity, you get you get low variability in that. So you get more consistent native fish populations are able to exist in a complicated environment. Does that make sense? It's a complicated concept. But the more variety you have in nature, um, the more chances there are for things like refuges, recolonisation, and the chance for resilience. So, but that's a real challenge in an urban environment, right? Because in order for that to happen, you need to let things move around. You know, we don't like the Avon River when it decides it wants to, you know, flood Oxford Terrace or whatever it's doing today. You know, we don't like when braided rivers move across the plains because you know they make things difficult for us. So, you know, if we have resilient ecosystems, we do need to give them space to room, uh, space to move. Uh, and so that's my third point. You know, it's really important that we embrace the idea that. Dynamic is good. Um, a variety in things is going to produce resilience, um, but that's going to involve space. Um, and that's what, but that's what we see on on Braided Rivers. You know, this is there's lots of pictures going on here, but we're going from small things to big things. Um, and the small things are, are living in different places, but the birds are moving across all those different places and can integrate across them. That's a very powerful resilience mechanism in ecology.
so um, we need to deal with more unpredictability. We need to manipulate habitat characteristics we, we can. We, we, we're in for engineering. We've already engineered the planet. We need to engineer our cities. We need to actively manage predators, and we need to maintain those habitat dynamics. Kara uh, Koto, thanks very much uh, for listening and uh, for inviting me. Kia Angus, thank you very much. I'd now like to invite Eric Paulson up to talk to you. Um, Eric is a Professor Emeritus of Geography at the University of Canterbury. He also, amongst other things, chairs the Waitakere Eco Sanctuary Trust. And here he is now. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I think it's uh, no coincidence that in this um, age of the Anthropocene, we're becoming more and more concerned about the fate of the wild. Uh, let alone the um, urban wild. There's a very nice little book uh, written by two French historians called The Shock of the Anthropocene, and it has a number of quite uh, shocking statistics in it. Now, if you um, imagine the combined biomass of all land-based vertebrates on Earth, then something like one-third of that biomass is accounted for by us, which is a fairly shocking statistic. The more shocking one, to my mind, is that the balance of the two-thirds is accounted for by our domestic animals, which is cattle, sheep, pigs, and, dare I say it, cats and dogs. So that leaves about 3% of the combined biomass of land-based vertebrates for the 30,000 wild species. So I don't have the sort of ecological expertise that Angus has, but as a geographer I am very interested in how things connect, and I've got just a couple of slides to explore this in a little bit more detail. I think one of the great opportunities we've got in this city after the earthquake. I love Katie Pickle's uh, little book that she wrote about five or six years ago, Christchurch Ruptures. What are the opportunities that arise from ruptures? And one of the big opportunities we have here is the Atakaro Avon River Corridor that we used to call the residential red zone, which is... Um, well, you can see it is in orange on there. Uh, and the green bits around it are... Um, uh, public reserve land. It's about uh, 600 hectares that was cleared of housing between about 2012 and um, 2015. We have a regeneration plan for the um, Atakaro River Corridor that was produced as the result of probably the city's most intensive process of public engagement uh, in 2016-2017. And that plan, amongst other things, allows for the revegetation of this corridor in um, uh, uh, wetlands and forested areas. And it also sets aside a number of uh, particular parts uh, outside that central revegetated zone. And so in the eastern reaches, the area is set aside for ecological restoration and the plan specifically names uh, also um, 
uh, eco-sanctuary projects and uh, eco-tourism projects. That's the area from uh, roughly uh, Burwood uh, down to the, uh, through Bexley to the, um, to the estuary. So one of my interests in the red zone, um, since I retired a few years ago, that's really where I focused my activities as a co-founder of the Otakaro um, Living Laboratory and the current chair of the Waitakere Eco Sanctuary. And this is something that Angus was talking about. One of the most effective means of predator control we have on a small scale is fenced eco sanctuaries. This part of the world, the eastern coast of the South Island, is largely missing substantial um, fenced eco sanctuaries. So a real project that we could put in place here uh, in and around the Burwood part of the red zone is a fenced eco-sanctuary in which the 97% give something to the 3%. In other words, that we keep people at bay, but we particularly keep their cats and dogs at bay. And following on from what Angus was saying, we also keep their fellow travellers at bay, particularly the rats and the mice. And what you then do is create a haven in which you have a pest-free core from which birds like uh, Tui, Bellbird, Saddleback, Keraroo can move out after fledging and which acts as a creche for um, land-dwelling birds such as kiwi and for holding larger populations of geckos, skinks, tuatara and... Um, rare plants. That's one particular vision. It's wonderful to hear that these things are being done on the Port Hills, but uh, predator-free New Zealand programs generally only focus on a small range of predators. In a fenced eco-sanctuary, we're talking something like 10% of the red zone at most. Then uh, you're, you're talking about much more effective widespread control. What would this look like if we then put this into the context of the city as a whole? And this, I think, is, is quite important. This is a rather um, notional map, which I've drawn up myself. You'll probably find errors on it. But it's a map of uh, blue-green corridors. What if we think of the city not as streets and pavements and houses, but as corridors of water and vegetation? Water is the blue, vegetation is the green. I say that because I gave this talk to a U3A group a few weeks ago and somebody put their hands up and said, what's blue and what's green? Uh, in something like the red zone, then blue and green sort of acts together. Uh, the purpose of putting this map together is to show that we actually have quite extensive areas of blue-green corridors and with a little bit of work, perhaps we can connect these much more effectively over time. And by over time, uh, something like the, the Red Zone project, for instance, is, is intergenerational. It's not going to happen tomorrow. How about if we activate this network with something like uh, my friend Colin Merck calls the beating heart of a protected eco-sanctuary? And Angus was talking about leaving space for... Um, rivers, but also for wild species to move out. And if we create these blue-green corridors and foster them and think about the city in this sort of way, then that's a real possibility. It seems to me, uh, following through from some of the things Katie Pickles says in Christchurch Ruptures, we would then end up with a new kind of garden city. 
We lost a lot in the earthquakes, but we also stand to gain a lot if we think about uh, real possibilities such as this. And the National Park City Foundation, you'll be aware that the, um, uh, the press has been um, pushing this line for a while, uh, talks about national park cities as cities where people and the wild are better connected. I thought Joseph put this a whole lot better when he talked about uh, mana for the soul, which is a much more effective way of describing uh, what the National Park City is on about. So I see real possibilities in thinking about the city as a network of corridors, uh, uh, what geographers call a network made up of the more than human in which we consciously allow space for the 3%, which we as the 97% have almost uh, squeezed off the map, as it were. Kira. You've been listening to part one of Embracing the Urban Wild, the first event in the Christchurch Conversations for 2022 Climate Action Series. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. And podcasts of the whole series will be available on the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations.